This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 8th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The legal wrangling between domestic opioid manufacturers and state attorneys general is, in short, a shakedown. That from Cato Senior Fellow Jeff Singer. He argues that to fundamentally address the opioid problem at the state level, the federal government first needs to get out of the way. So far, uh, a number of settlements have taken place between some of the pharmaceutical companies that uh, manufacture opioids. Others uh, are awaiting trial. Uh, you have this uh, uh, case in Oklahoma where all of the other defendants had settled, but Johnson & Johnson decided to go to court. And, and uh, they felt justified for a number of reasons. Number one, they were concerned about preserving their good reputation. But number two, according to data provided by the DEA, first of all, they only made uh, rough, they were only responsible for roughly 1% of the prescription opioid market in Oklahoma. Second, out of those prescription opioids that they were responsible for, one was Duragesic, which is a fentanyl skin patch, which has been around for decades. It's very, it's not abused. It's not the fentanyl we hear about, about people dying from fentanyl overdoses. The DEA tells us that over 99% of that fentanyl is fentanyl powder smuggled in from Asia or through Mexico. It's what they call illicit fentanyl. Duragesic patches are very difficult to abuse because if you put it on your skin, it takes about three days to slowly get absorbed anyway. And it's kind of inconvenient to scrape off the uh, the the what's on the, that patch to try to use it. So they make that, and then they make Nucinta, which is uh, a synthetic opioid, sort of like tramadol. It's much m milder than a lot of the prescription opioids, and it's, it's designed to be chemically different than opioids so that presumably you'd have a lower rate of getting addicted or or abusing the drug. So the reward for that, oh, and then the other thing they do is they make the raw materials that other manufacturers use to make opioids. So, so the reward for making a, a drug that's not abused, another drug that has a decreased likelihood of abuse, and providing raw materials to other opioid manufacturers, that they got to, they got to, pay a penalty. It, it seems very unjust in my opinion. But here's the most important thing. This whole thing, in my opinion, is a shakedown. This is, to me, it's like the government is, you know, Tony Soprano and the opioid manufacturers are going to have to give a piece of the action to the government. That's what this is all about. Because uh, as has been shown repeatedly, and I published this in the peer review literature, uh, According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, going back as far as the survey goes until present day, and also according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there is no correlation between the number of prescriptions out there and the non-medical use of prescription opioids by people over age 12 or the development of opioid use disorder by people over age 12. We looked. I, I've talked about this in the past. Um, those the non-medical use and opioid use disorder numbers have stayed rock solid, stable since we've been taking these surveys, and that those are during periods when opioid prescription volume doubled, and then since that time has come down over sixty percent. Uh, 
In the meantime, the overdose rate has continued to climb. And the only thing that's changed is that now 75 to 80% of overdoses are from fentanyl and heroin. Um, and almost all overdoses involve multiple drugs in the system, including alcohol, cocaine, tranquilizers, heroin, fentanyl. The, the amount of the percentage of overdoses due to just prescription opioids by themselves without anything else is less than 10%. Are there things that states can do that uh, do not implicate the federal government at all? Or is this, is this really a top-down problem? Well, a lot of it requires uh, federal help. The, uh, the, this has always been primarily about non-medical users accessing drugs in a dangerous black market. And now uh, the, these drugs are adulterated with fentanyl. That's why they're dying. The best thing that could happen is for the government to get out of the way of efforts by people who would like to save these people's lives. So for example, Philadelphia and several other major cities in this country would like to set up what they call safe injection facilities, also called overdose prevention centers. They've been around in much of the developed world for close to 30 years. There's several of them in Canada. Um, and they're proven to reduce overdoses and actually uh, bring people in to rehab treatment. Um, but federal laws called, so, called the so-called crack house statute stands in a way of communities that want to set these up. In Philadelphia, there's a privately funded group, totally privately funded, uh, that was given the green light to do so by the, the city council of Philadelphia, and they're trying to set up a, a, a safe injection site. And uh, the Department of Justice is in court trying to stop them. So one of the things that the federal government does do is get out of the way of people who are trying to help. Um, naloxone, which is the opioid over, uh, overdose antidote, that uh, the, the FDA has been literally pleading with the uh, manufacturers to ask them to make it over the counter because if it's over the counter, it's going to be accessible to a whole lot more people than it's accessible to now. That's why it's over the counter in places like Australia and Italy. So they don't have to ask. They could just do it. They, they don't have to be asked. Um, and uh, Or Congress could just order naloxone to be over the counter. Um, they could relax the restrictions that exist now on doctors who are wanting to treat people with opioid use disorder with drugs like buprenorphine uh, because there's this waiver you have to obtain from the DEA called the X waiver that is too onerous and therefore only a tiny percentage of doctors who would otherwise be able to treat people with buprenorphine for their addiction are taking advantage of the fact that they can because they don't want to go through all the hassle of getting that X waiver. We need to repeal uh, that X waiver. There is legislation being discussed in Congress to do that. Methadone clinics, proven since the 60s to be an effective treatment for substance abuse disorder and preventing overdoses and the spread of disease. Since the DEA took over management of that about 15 years ago, the number of methadone clinics in this country actually decreased um, because the, the requirements are so rigid. Um, for example, it's required that a person has to come and take their methadone in the presence of a member of the clinic staff and then leave. They can't be sent home with the methadone. They got to come and take it in presence of the staff. So, and that's not the case when it comes to buprenorphine. So there are a whole lot of people who, you know, expecting people to drive 50 miles 
each way once or twice a day to take their methadone. It's not going to happen. Um, if instead, we should be like it, it is in uh, in Canada and the UK and Australia. It's been like that since the 70s, where doctors who are interested in treating substance abuse disorder could just prescribe methadone in their office to their patients uh, and follow them in their office. There was a pilot program to do that in Boston that was reported on a year ago that seems to be very successful. So there are things that that can be done on a federal level that don't involve any expenditure of money. They just involve basically the government getting out of the way of people who want to help people who are using drugs uh, obtained in the black market. Now, of course, the ultimate thing the government could do is end drug prohibition because as long as these drugs are prohibited, people are going to, just like with, with vaping, you're going to see people using things in the black market that you uh, that are oftentimes laced with or tainted with impurities and can kill people. So the, the real answer is to end prohibition, which they did, for example, in Portugal in 2001. They, they decriminalized all drugs. Their overdose rate dropped. Their addiction rate dropped. They have one of the lowest overdose rates now in the developed world. Uh, they're actually entertaining the idea of doing the same thing in Me Mexico. Uh, Malaysia recently voted to do that, and in Norway, they voted to do that. We need to end prohibition, actually, if we want to see less people die. But until we do that, what we at least need to do is have the government get out of the way of people who are trying to help save lives. In terms of uh, Canada and Australia and uh, Great Britain and their experience with safe injection sites, uh, how does that change how they understand the nature of addiction and uh, the related problems to addiction? Well, many uh, experts, many scholars and therapists realize that addiction is uh, a, a behavioral illness that is related to usually trauma. Uh, in early development, and uh, th there's some genetic predisposition as well, and there's a lot, oftentimes a lot of psychological or neurological comorbidities, but these are uh, automatized coping mechanisms, and most people who are, have addiction, um, their lives, by definition, are, are in, in not a good state because, by definition, addiction is continued use despite negative consequences. So their lives usually are in a pretty bad situation. Their self-esteem is an all-time low. Uh, many of them are living on the street. They're used to people avoiding contact with them, sometimes crossing over to the other side of the street when they see them. So what's happened is in a lot of these safe injection facilities, when they're, they're saying to these people, come in, uh, you could use whatever you're using here in our presence with a clean needle and syringe that we will take back when, when you're done so you can't uh, distributed elsewhere. And we're here to rescue you with naloxone if you overdose. And then they engage in discussions with them. They say, you can stay in here out of the cold if you want. You can take a shower. Do you have a place to stay? You know, I know somebody who can get you a place to stay. And for some, for many of these people, for the first time in their lives, or first time in years, rather, you know, somebody is actually talking to them like a human being and like they actually care about whether they're going to be all right. And that contact actually changes the whole dynamic for a lot of these people and makes them much more amenable to getting help. They, when they suddenly realize that they, they do have a value and that people value them, they suddenly seek help and get help. And there's been a lot of experience showing that uh, an added a bonus benefit of these 
safe injection facilities, aside from preventing overdoses and, and providing this, preventing the spread of HIV and hepatitis, is that they're actually having an increased intake of people into rehab who are getting their lives straightened out. So um, these are things that need to be done. And there are many groups in this country, like the one in Philadelphia, who are not even asking for funding. They're just asking for permission to do this. Dr. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 